Thank you, Jeremy, for leading us in prayer for our small groups. Um, he's not wrong. There are a thousand different names for small groups in a lot of different churches. Uh, life group, community groups, D groups, Sunday school. Um, when I was in college, this movie came out called Vantage Point. Anybody ever seen that? I see, like one or two hands. Great. Okay, good. Not a lot of Dennis Quaid fans in the room. Uh, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, so those two guys are in the movie. Um, if you've never seen it, the plot is pretty simple. There is an assassination attempt on the President of the United States, uh, but it happens in a different country. Um, and the whole movie is told and then retold from different people's perspectives and how they witnessed the event. Same event, but different perspectives, right? Because um, there were multiple, this is in public, multiple eyewitnesses, um, and there were different vantage points, hence the name of the movie, Vantage Point. Um, I think it is helpful for us uh, to keep that in mind while we are studying through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we don't have to have, uh, you've seen horses that have blinders on, right, and they're just like focused. Like, we don't have to have blinders on when we're studying the Gospel of Mark um, and because the Gospel of Mark doesn't have all the things that Matthew um, or Luke or John has in it. Right? But we have all four Gospels, uh, and so, which, is, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, we know that, the, that all four Gospels chronicle the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, where, um, that's why we, we can have the foundation of our faith in Jesus is because of the Gospels. We don't just have one. We've got four. Right? And so um, I want us to keep that in mind uh, because we're going we're gonna to come across a few things in our passage tonight that uh, is going to be like, hmm, that's interesting. Why does it say that? It doesn't say that in Matthew. Why does Mark have this? And why does Mark not include this? So um, we're going to finish up chapter 6 tonight. We're going to look at verses 45 through 56. And I think um, the danger with a passage like this is um, it's Jesus walking on the water, right? And, and the danger with this is it's so familiar that you could just tune out right now. You'd be like, I've heard this story, I know the story. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you're like, you could come up here and tell the story yourself, right? You, you know it very well. Um, and so I want to challenge us to not do that. Don't tune out. Don't think, I already know this. I could write it down. I could, I could preach this message, right? Um, I want us to approach the text with fresh eyes tonight. I really want us to, to, to see, okay, is my heart ready to see what the Lord wants to show me tonight and teach me what he wants us to know about himself? Like, because I believe personally that we could all grow from even a very familiar passage of Scripture, right? Because the reality is we don't know the Lord as much as we think we do, and we definitely don't love him as much as we say we do. So, my prayer is that we would know him more, love him more, 
be more in awe of him after we read this passage. Now, um, since we've been in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, we know that Mark's whole point is to tell us the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. He claimed this through his teaching. He backs it up through some extraordinary works that he's done, right? And that he does things that only God can do. We've already seen him do incredible things um, all the way up to the end of chapter 6 here. And tonight we're going to see him do some just mind-blowing things that we can't even possibly comprehend. And so um, before we read the passage together, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Father God, we do come before you now humbly, Lord, because um, we need you. We, uh, we confess that um, we do not know all that we need to know about you, that we do not love you like we should, Lord, that we, we are not, uh, we don't have a, a, a healthy fear of you as we should if we're honest with ourselves and with other people. Well, we do come before you right now to say we need your word to speak to us. And I ask, Lord, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convict, that you would challenge, that you would correct, that you would teach us, train us, so that we could be more faithful followers of Jesus for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is God's word Starting in verse 45, Mark chapter 6, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. If you're thinking, man, this kind of sounds familiar. Uh, It sounds like the disciples are in a boat. Uh, It sounds like there's some wind on the boat. It sounds like it's a scary scene. It sounds like uh, that time when Jesus was taking a nap and they woke him up. And he spoke to the wind and the waves and said, hush. And they were like, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Right? They were pretty floored. It's it's pretty similar, right? Except for this one fact that Jesus is not in the boat this time. The disciples are by themselves. It, It does make us recall the fact, though, that Jesus is the master, 
He's master over all. He's master not only over demons and diseases and death, like we've already seen so far in the Gospels, but he's master over nature. He controls it all. He's sovereign over it all. And so as I was studying this very familiar passage, there's a little phrase that kind of stuck out to me, a few little phrases, right? It says, he saw and he came. Not, you're like, that's not profound, Joseph. I know. Sometimes it's the small things that are very profound, right? So I think that the main gist of this passage, the main idea, if you will, is that there is no God like Jesus, that he sees, that he came, or that he speaks, that he cares. Very simple, very profound. In verse 45, Mark uses his favorite word, immediately, right? We're, we're caught up in this frenzy of activity in Mark's words, right? And, and it's fascinating, in the Greek, this phrase that Jesus, he he makes them. He made his disciples get in the boat, right? They didn't want to get in the boat. And I think it's important for us to remember these are a little band of teenagers. These are not grown men, okay? Like these are a little band of teenagers, right? So it's not like you're pushing like a, a Brody or a Zach or a Spencer into the boat. It's like Jesus, Jesus made these guys get into the boat. He forcibly got them in and pushed them off. Last week, we learned that Jesus did uh, something miraculous. He fed thousands and thousands of people with fish that never swam and bread that never grew. Wasn't that a good line last week? It's awesome. And these people are like, this is our king. We want this dude to be with us forever. He can make demons flee. He can raise people from the dead. He can heal the sick. He makes food appear out of nowhere. This is awesome. He's, he's going to be the one to deliver us from the Roman oppression. He's going to get rid of the Roman Empire. This is our king. They were thinking that Jesus was going to forever be with them to fill their bellies and make their, their bodies healthy consistently. They were thinking with their bellies and not with their hearts, really. They wanted political freedom. They wanted healthy bodies. They weren't necessarily thinking, I want to bow my knee to Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior of my life. They weren't thinking about the wrath of God over their sins. They weren't thinking about the fact that they all needed a new heart. They weren't thinking about that at all. They weren't thinking about Christ crucified. And neither were his disciples. Externally, they saw all the things that they wanted, but they didn't see the, the thing that they needed the most in Jesus. And his disciples are caught up in the frenzy, and they're swayed by the crowd, and they're like, this is a good thing. We've got leftovers. I love leftovers. They're fantastic. We'll have food all the time. Jesus gives us free food, and, and there's leftovers. And you know what? We're really excited because he's our teacher. I am his disciple. I've seen him do some crazy things. That was pretty awesome. But, like, this is going to be awesome. Like, you guys should hang out. We got a front row seat. This is amazing. 
they, they, they got to personally witness the Jesus revolution. But Jesus has other plans. He makes them get into the boat. This is an, this, I want you to have in your, in your mind this picture of like, uh, like little teenagers who are like, I don't want to, to leave the house where I'm having fun. I'm playing right now, and I don't want to get in the car, and I don't want to leave. Don't make me leave. But Jesus insists on it. He, it's like he, like he gets them in the boat, and then he pushes them off. He's like, you're going to go to the other side. I'm going to dismiss the crowd. I don't need your help to dismiss the crowd. And, you know, it doesn't say this, but maybe they didn't want to, to, to leave Jesus, right? Because remember the last time they were in the boat, Jesus was sleeping in the boat, and the storm came up, and they were terrified that they were going to die. And so they're like, I don't want to get in the boat if Jesus ain't coming. I don't want to leave you. Whatever the case was for them, the reality is that the show's over and it's not time for them to do what they think needs to be done. So once the disciples are off, Jesus dismisses the crowd. And then he does something pretty simple but profound. He goes up on the mountain to pray. Jesus needed time alone. He knew the importance of recharging his battery. If you don't remember, like when they landed on the shore, they were going to a retreat. They were going to hang out and just rest. But then he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. They didn't get the retreat that they, were, they thought they were going to get, right? And so he goes up and he, goes, he, he knows, I need to commune with the Father. I need to be alone and commune with the Father. He needed to, to stay focused on his mission. Now, you could ask a very simple question. Why would Jesus need to pray? Why would Jesus pray at all, right? If, if Jesus is fully God, and if Jesus could uh, have power over demons and disease and death and nature, why would he need to pray? I think there's a few things that Jesus teaches us by doing this. Number one, it shows us his humanity. He was living dependently on the Father. He didn't try to do things in and of his own strength. He prays to the Father often. He does it in public. He does it in private. Throughout the Gospels, we see this. He also proves uh, that he's about his father's business. Right? He even says this back in, in, uh, when he was 12 years old. Didn't you know, Mom and Dad, I'd be in my father's house? He's always thinking about his father's business. He, he, he wants to do his father's will, not his own. And this, if you had that power, you'd probably, I mean, I know I would probably be very prideful of having the power to do everything Jesus could do, but he's very humble and he stays submissive to the Father, and he goes to pray. I think it also foreshadows Jesus' intercession, that he prays for us. He prays for his disciples. We see this in, in John 15, 16, and 17, in the high priestly prayer. And we know that right now, since we studied through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. So what we see in this Passage is that God the Son goes to speak with God the Father. So if Jesus knew how important it was for him to commune with the Father, how much more us? How much more do we need to go and spend time with the Father? When's the last time you went up on the mountain to get alone? You don't have to go up on a mountain. When's the last time you woke up earlier to get alone with the Father? 
to spend time in seeking his strength and his wisdom and his clarity and his direction and his will for your life and to pray. And who knows, we don't know what he prayed specifically. It doesn't tell us. But maybe the father was like, while he's praying, he's like, hey man, you need to go check on your boys. They're in trouble. They're really struggling out there on the boat. Go show them who you are. Remind them of who you are. Look at verses 47 and 48. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by. Um, so if you've never, uh, there's going to be a picture up on the screen, I hope. It's called uh, the drive through history, the Gospels. If you've never seen any of these, you need to go on Amazon and watch them. Now, not all of them are on there, um, but you can get like a year-long prescription for like, prescription? Yes, Rx. Subscription. That's right. Words are hard. Um, you can get one of those for like 100 bucks for a year. It's pretty awesome. But uh, this guy named Dave Stotts does these, and he does an incredible job of mingling um, the historical narrative with the, uh, the gospel accounts. Um, and so he doesn't only do this on the gospels. He does it on American history, a lot of different things. It's really cool. Um, so go look those up. This next picture is where um, I did like a screenshot of a part of the video. The, he says, this is where uh, Jesus potentially could have gone up on the mountain to overlook the Sea of Galilee. But I, I, just, I was just baffled by like, that's actually, look how high he is. Like that's actually the Sea of Galilee. I wish the video could have worked for you. But this is incredible. This is where Jesus would have stood, where Jesus would have went and spent time to commune with the Father, and it says that he saw his disciples struggling in the little boat on the wind-tossed sea. Um, have you ever been uh, to the beach and you threw a Frisbee against the wind? What happens to the Frisbee? It doesn't go very far, right? Sometimes it will pass you the opposite way. It's crazy because you're going against the wind. Right? And, and it's, uh, it seems like it's like an exercise in futility to throw a Frisbee against the wind. These guys were oaring against the wind. They're paddling. They've been doing this for hours. You could say that the disciples were in the struggle boat. Right? They, they have, it says the fourth watch of the night. And for us, we're like, what does that mean? Translation, 3 a.m., Fourth watch of the night was right before the dawn, so 3 to 6 a.m. So it's super dark out there, and it's windy, and they don't have um, a lot of lights on their boat. Um, all of us have probably stood near a body of water, maybe the ocean. You know, you can't see very far when you're looking out on the water. Some people estimate you can see about a mile or whatever out on the water. Um, some people say in this passage that Jesus walking on the water isn't the only miracle in this passage. But that when he saw them, that was a miracle. Because if you think about it, around 3 a.m., it's dark, it's stormy, he's up on a mountain, he saw them struggling. 
context clues, right? Now, we don't know whether he physically saw them with his human eyes or whether he saw them. See what I'm saying? One commentator said, did Jesus see with his human eyes those three miles out in the sea? Or is this a manifestation of his divinity? We don't know. But the point is clear. Jesus' focus was upon those who were undergoing difficulty. Right? He, he sees and knows. This text says that he was alone on the land. The disciples were on the boat. The reality for us today is that we are never alone. That he always sees us. That he always knows where we are. That there's never a point in time where he doesn't see. Where he doesn't know. And it, I love this part. It doesn't say that Jesus only saw him. It doesn't say he only saw his disciples struggling. It says that he came to them without a boat. Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Man, my prayer is that the word of God would pierce our hearts tonight in such a way that we would hear it and we would see it like we've never heard it or seen it before. That no matter what you are going through in life right now, there's a lot of people in the room. There's a lot of stuff going on in people's lives, a lot of stuff going on in people's marriages, a lot of stuff going on in parenting and caring for the sick and caring for for, uh, aging parents. He knows where you are. He knows what's going on in your life. He sees what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in your heart. He sees your thoughts. He knows your thoughts. You can't surprise him. He knows what's happening. He knows what you're going through. He knows you, you feel like you're about to give up. You're right on the brink of giving up. You're exhausted You've been rowing so hard, so long. You're about to give up. You're overwhelmed. This text says Jesus sees you. It says he comes to you. It says that he cares about you. It says that he's walking towards your struggle. He's walking towards your your troubles. It says something very weird. It says that He's walking on the water. That's not something you think about every day. Right? This, this Jesus is exercising divine authority right here. This is his omnipotence. This is God treading on his creation. This is not natural. If, you, if you've ever ran across somebody who likes to rip the supernatural out of the Bible, they take this off. It was a sandbar. He was just, it was, a, it was a convenient sandbar for miles. He was just walking on the sandbar. He's not actually walking on the water. No, the text says he's walking on the water. It, it says no one but God can walk on the water. Job 9.8 says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? No one but God controls the elements because he created the elements He's the creator of all matter, of all cells, all molecules. He holds all things together. He not only created all things, it says he holds it all together, he sustains them. He can make them come together and make them hard if he wants to. 
And when it comes to water, this isn't the first time that he's done something with it that's unusual, right? He can turn it into blood like he did in the plagues. He can part it like he did at the Red Sea. He can make it come out of a rock in the middle of a desert where there is no stream, there is no body of water, there is no river. He can part the Jordan River and make a river stop so that people can walk through on dry ground. He can talk to it and tell it to shut up and immediately it gets smooth as glass. He can change its particles into wine. If he could do all of that, he could easily tread on it. You know, water is one of the most powerful and destructive elements on the planet. And Jesus walks all over it. No big deal for him. Because he's not an ordinary man. But why would it say he meant to pass by them? That's very odd, right? But it brings to mind some Old Testament passages where God is passing by a few other men. Maybe you'll recall Exodus 33, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And then it says, the Lord said, there's a place near me where you can stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Because you can't see me or you'll die. Because I'm holy and you're not. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah cries out to God in his distress, and God answers him. And he says, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The point is this. Mark wants us to see Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And when they saw him, the disciples, walking on the sea, Mark reiterates that phrase, walking on the sea. Very unusual. They thought it was a ghost. That word for ghost is phantom. Apparition. They cried out. For they all saw him and they were terrified. So this is a horror movie type fear. This is teenage boys screaming like little girls. Are any teenage boys in the room right now? Would you be willing to scream? like a little girl. Scream. Nobody's willing to do it. They're afraid. I'll tell you what, this morning, Case screamed like a little girl. We, we did it. While we were reading this passage, I was like, Case, what do you think they sounded like? And he just screamed. And it was terrifying to hear him scream, right? But they were screaming like little girls. They were absolutely terrified. They were very afraid. And he says, immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So first Jesus saw the disciples, then he came to them on the water. It doesn't say that one of them had more courage than the other. It doesn't say one of them was like, oh, that's Jesus, bro, it's okay. It says that they all collectively were frightened. And in the original language, it says that they were troubled at heart. That they were screaming blood-curdling murder. Like, this is a ghost. I'm seeing a phantom. I don't know what's happening right now. And what's interesting is that Jesus could have left them 
troubled in heart in the little boat, but he didn't because he cares. When Jesus got in the boat, he addressed their frightened little hearts, and he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And what that means is, have courage. Be of good courage. Where is your faith? Don't you trust me? This is me. Right? He, he gives them hope. He's, he speaks to them. He, he doesn't only see them. He doesn't only come to them, but he speaks to them. Sometimes somebody's presence, right? You ever heard like the ministry of presence? Sometimes you just need to be with people, and that helps soothe people, calm people if you're just there with them, right? That's true. But guess what? How much more so words that God has given us? He speaks to them words so that they can hear and have courage because, as we've already seen, he's a good shepherd. He's a compassionate shepherd, right? And this is the good shepherd who's reminding them, just like Psalm 23, that they're not alone. Fear not. I'm with you. Because he knows humans. He knows that we are prone to be afraid. He knows the fear that resides within our hearts. Even some of his greatest servants were afraid. Moses, before the Exodus, when God calls him, was super afraid. He's like, I can't speak very well. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can do what you're asking me to do. I don't even know your name. Who, who am I supposed to tell the people that sent me? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I'm reminding you right now, you don't have to be afraid. There's no reason to have fear. And he not only speaks to them, but he gets in the boat with them. He's near to the trouble in heart. And he says, when he got in the boat with them, the wind ceased. Well, that's shocking. And they were utterly astounded. You remember back when we were studying through the book of Jonah and the Minor Prophets series and the sailors threw Jonah overboard? What happened to the wind and the waves? Ceased immediately, calm, boom. Jesus gets on board the boat and the winds cease because Jesus is in control. Jesus was in control of that situation. Jesus is in control of this situation, right? There's never a millisecond when Jesus is not in control. He's never like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see them going into the storm. He pushed them into the storm. He told them to go to the sea. He knew what was coming, right? He's, he's not surprised by what is happening in their current situation. He's never surprised by their circumstances, He's never thrown off by an environment. So think about this. You won't find yourself in a situation where Jesus is not in control. No matter how chaotic you feel like it is, no matter how overwhelmed you feel, deep down within your soul, if your heart is troubled, you know. The scripture says Jesus is in control. We should be amazed. We should be astonished by his divine authority. 
In verse 52, it's probably the most complex verse in this passage. It says, for they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Mark is referring back to the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw last week. The disciples didn't understand that someone greater than Moses is in front of them. They didn't understand that there's a rescue plan greater than the exodus that's unfolding right in front of their face. And Mark records their hearts were hardened. Now some might read a contradiction here and say, Aha! I knew the Bible couldn't be trusted because Mark says their hearts are hard. And in the Gospel of Matthew, in the exact same story, it says that when Jesus got in the boat, they worshipped him and said, truly, you're the son of God. Look at these two. They're going to be on the screen. Mark 6, 52, Matthew 14, 33. Which one is it? Were their hearts hard or did they worship him and say, you are the son of God? Same story. You remember the vantage point illustration from the beginning? There's different perspectives here. It's not that we have to choose between one or the other. It's both. Some believed and some doubted. Now, you might be thinking, I'm very familiar with this story. In Mark, uh, Peter is not mentioned. Didn't Peter walk on the water too? Right? Peter was Mark's main source of eyewitness testimony. So it's pretty interesting that Peter doesn't tell Mark to write down what Matthew records. In Matthew 14, 28-31, we learn that Peter steps out of the boat. He saw Jesus, and he said, if that's truly you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. He gets out of the boat, and he walks on water. And then he starts sinking because he started looking at the wind and the waves, and he got afraid. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt Now, maybe Peter was embarrassed, and he's like, Mark, don't add that part. Can you not include that in your gospel, please? Or I like to think that Mark didn't include it because Peter was humble, and he didn't want to brag because he'd been humbled enough, and he didn't have to brag about what he had seen, what he had done. Because he could have bragged. I was the only one that had the guts to step out of the boat and walk on the water. Either way, it reminds us that all 12 disciples were at different levels of understanding about Jesus at different times. I don't want us to miss this because this is true of us today. This is true of everybody in the room. All people sitting in this room right now Anybody watching online, anybody who listens to this later, we're all coming from different perspectives, different vantage points, different seasons in life. Some in this room are reading the Bible for the very first time, and some are doubting. Some in this room are new believers, just beginning to walk with Jesus Some people in this room have been walking with Jesus for years, and this is the 50th time you've heard this story and you've read this passage. We're all at different stages. 
different levels of understanding when it comes to faith in Jesus and grasping the truth of the gospel. It's important for us to remember that one of Mark's main points of emphasis throughout his gospel is that the disciples lacked faith throughout their time with Jesus, even though they saw him face to face and they witnessed all of his miracles. They still lacked faith, true, trusting faith. The question continues to come up, and it's still not going to be over. We're still going to see it over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this Jesus? The disciples were slow to put together the fact that God was doing something miraculous right in front of their eyeballs. They were on this journey with Jesus, and he's unfolding his plan of salvation He's working all things out. The point of the loaves, if you remember from last week, is that Jesus satisfies your soul, not just your stomach. His presence and his patience is astonishing. And we need both of them. I know I need both of them. I need his presence and I need his patience. Because there's oftentimes I forget him. There's oftentimes I ignore him. I don't listen to him. I don't remember that he sees me. I don't remember that he knows me. I don't remember that he, he came to me and that he cares. Because we're in the same boat as the disciples. Like Rob said last week, it's not about the miracle. It's about the miracle worker. Let's look at this last section. This could be a whole other sermon in and of itself, but we'll run through it pretty quick here. When they, when they crossed over to the sea, they came to Gennesaret and they anchored at the shore when they got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard him that he was so just think about this wherever Jesus goes people are bringing sick people to him he can't get away he can't catch a break even in the marketplaces the point here is that Jesus cares and heals his divine authority and power are on display yet again. He sees, he came, he speaks, and he cares. Even if they touched the fringe of his garment. I hope that reminds you of the lady who had the problem of bleeding in the crowd, reaching out to touch the coattails of Jesus to be healed. At the very end of the Old Testament, the redeemed of Israel are promised great joy in the future. In Malachi 4.2, it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The son of righteousness is an unmistakable reference to Jesus as the Messiah. There is an even more important point here that there is power in Jesus's coattails, the wings of his garments, had divine authority because they were on him. Telling us yet again in this same passage, Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God. And I think, just to come back to verse 52 before we close, that there's a massive warning for us here in this text tonight. It's very possible for us, very possible for you to be very familiar with this story to be very familiar with the Gospels and completely miss Jesus. You can become calloused to Jesus, insensitive. 
So whenever we approach the scriptures, we need to be aware of this. If it was true for the disciples, we need to be aware. It's very possible for us as well. When we approach the scriptures, we need to pray, God, give me eyes to see. Give me a soft heart to believe and trust you. Like break up any possibility of hardness within me because I want to know you more. I want to love you. I want to obey you. Jesus came to them on the water. More importantly, he came to us on the earth. Emmanuel is another name for Jesus. It means God with us. Emmanuel, we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, for his glory, he is with you, Red Oak. You are not alone. No matter where you might find yourself, you don't have to be afraid. And maybe you're like, man, this is a really interesting story. Some crazy things Jesus did. Thanks for sharing. Why does it matter for me right now in 2024? Why does it matter? Why should I care? Why should I care that Jesus fed thousands? Why should I care that Jesus walked on the water? Why should I care that he healed the sick? Because he was displaying for you and me his glorious power. He is revealing who he is. That his creation was created to worship him. Isaiah 53 says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You and I were created for God's glory, to magnify him. That is why we are on this earth. This past Christmas, we bought our uh, boys a microscope. And uh, I'll admit that thing's pretty cool. It takes things that are uh, small, but you can't see really good, and it helps you to zoom in on them like a leaf. You're like, man, there's like a lot of veins going on in the leaf. I didn't know. I couldn't see that with my naked eye. I think microscopes are really cool, but I think telescopes are even more amazing. And I don't have a telescope, but I've seen them. I've looked through a few of them, and it's absolutely fascinating how awesome it is that we could look through something and see something that's thousands and thousands of miles away and just it brings it closer that we can pay attention to it a little bit more, right? I think tonight, I hope you go home. I hope you look up at the stars and that you're amazed. If you have a telescope, look through it. I love this quote from Pastor John Piper. He said, it's the difference between a telescope and a microscope. Those both magnify a microscope takes little things and makes them look bigger than they are. If you try to do that with God, you blaspheme. He's not little, and you can't make him look bigger than he is. Telescopes are designed to take things that look little to the world and cause them to look like what they really are, namely magnificent. And that's the way we're supposed to magnify God. You and I were created to magnify and worship and glorify God. And Mark is telling us through this story that Jesus is the one and only God. He meant to pass by them on the water to magnify himself so they could see his glory. 
that he was born, that he lived, that he died, that he rose from the grave to show us his glory so that we would worship him. And even after the resurrection, right up before the Great Commission, we find a mixture of faith amongst people. In Matthew 28, 16 through 17, oftentimes we read 18, 19, 20. We don't focus on 16 and 17 because it says, when the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Don't you just love the honesty of the Bible? If God was trying to pull the wool over your eyes, he'd just leave that part out. But some doubted. Praise God for his word. Praise God for how honest he is. And that God's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your fears. He's not afraid of your questions. Right? He's not afraid if, if you think, I've got a hard heart. I'll never believe. I'll never trust him. I got to see. I got to know. Keep seeking. Keep looking. Keep reading. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Maybe you do have a hard heart tonight. Maybe you are doubting. Maybe you are astonished at Jesus. Maybe you're worshiping Jesus tonight. Either way, each of us are all called to respond to the text. Every time we read the scriptures, we're called to respond. The gospel is, Jesus said it, Mark 1, 15, repent and believe. Repent and believe, look to Jesus, magnify Jesus with your life. You were created to glorify him. Listen to his words. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You're not alone. He sees you. He knows you. He's called you to himself to magnify his name, to make him known. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you because you are worthy of all Praise, honor, glory, worship. You're worthy of our very lives. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how honest it is. God, well, your word tells us that it's perfect. That it revives our soul. Lord, that it, it, it makes us wise. That it's, it's good. That it's sweet. Lord, we need all of those things because all too often we are focused on our situation, on how overwhelmed we are, how troubled we are in our hearts, and we forget that you see us. We, we forget all too often that you have come to us. We praise you, Father, for sending Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, for promising that we would never be alone and for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell with us and in us. We praise you for your gospel. And we pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see how astonishing you truly are and that we would magnify you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.